Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced in the beautiful surrounds of Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. It's spring here. The beautiful cherry blossoms are out. The magpies are attacking cyclists. It's a gorgeous time of year to be here and it's a gorgeous place to study. And if you're a policymaker looking to do your postgraduate degree, in the field of public policy or you want to uh, find out more about our broad range of short courses and graduate degrees, just check out crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash degrees. Now, joining me in the small converted cupboard, which we sometimes grandly refer to as a studio here at Crawford School, is my co-host Sharon Bessel. Hello, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Martin. I'm great. Good it's, to be back. It's great to have you back in the country. Sharon, of course, is a professor here at Crawford School. She's also the editor of our Poverty in Focus section and the ANU lead of the Individual Deprivation Measure Project. So it's been a big couple of weeks for you. We talked to you last week on the podcast about being in the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence 2019 list. Uh, have the accolades kept coming in this week? Uh, they're slowing down, so I'm kind of coming back down to earth. But uh, it was really lovely to he get so many positive comments about that last week. It was um, a bit overwhelming, to be honest. So what's caught your eye in the, in the news, in the wide world of pu- public policy over the last week, Sharon? Well, as I said when we spoke um, last week when I was in London, I've been a bit overwhelmed by Brexit over the last week. Oh, haven't we all? In, yeah, haven't we all? <laughs> And of course, in the UK and across Europe, nothing else is being discussed. Um, but since I've come back, the thing that's caught my eye is the um, parliamentary inquiry into domestic violence and family law that's just been announced um, with Pauline Hanson as the co-chair of that committee. And I find this really disturbing. There have been a number of inquiries into domestic violence and family law in Australia recently. There are clear recommendations from those inquiries from the Australian Law Reform Commission about how we need to move forward. And it seems like we've just taken a giant step back um, in terms of addressing some of the real gaps that we have in Australia around family law. And I've got to say, I don't feel enormously confident about the fact that Pauline Hanson is co-chairing that um, that committee. She clearly brings um, her own personal history and agenda to it. And I think it's very worrying. So what do you think all that's about? Why on earth are they doing that? And what on, what on earth do you think they're going to find? Well, I think Pauline Hanson um, has really pushed for this inquiry. Um, she, it's something that um, she wants on the agenda. Um, she's had a, a family experience. And, of course, it's tragic when anyone has a family experience around these issues. But it does mean she brings um, a particular perspective to this. And I think some of this is really around appeasing the crossbenchers and um, you know, doing, doing some deals to ensure that the crossbenchers stay on side. In terms of what comes out of this, it's, it's very hard to say. But Um, It does worry me that we are again going to drag really traumatic experiences of people back through the the spotlight and not necessarily come out of it with good recommendations going forward. We've had a lot of recommendations from people who are expert in this area and I think we need to act on them. It does seem like a very strange choice. Um, So listeners, what do you think of that decision to uh, have uh, Pauline Hanson chair that uh, inquiry. Um, For me, what's caught my eye over the last week was an announcement yesterday from the Australian Capital Territory, which is obviously where where ANU is 
based and the Territory Government has announced plans to phase out natural gas, uh, to electrify its bus fleets and its public school buildings, and to introduce incentives for drivers who buy electric cars. Now, we've talked about electric cars and take over electric cars on the podcast before, but I thought it was a fantastic push from the ACT government, who are quite progressive in a lot of ways. And there was an interesting quote from the uh, ACT Chief Minister, Andrew Barr, who said that they were doing this because he thought that there was a public appetite for change. And I quote, there was a lot of distress at the lack of action at a national level on the impacts of uh, uh, climate change. What do you make of that, Sharon? I think he's probably right about the public appetite for something positive to happen. And if these kinds of initiatives can't happen in the ACT, um, it's hard to imagine where else in Australia they might happen. But I'm probably going to get this wrong. But I heard on the radio this morning as I was driving in my non-electrified car, she says guiltily, um, into the ANU that the ACT is now one of, I think it is the eight jurisdictions with a population over 100,000 that is is able to use um, fully renewable energy to um, provide our electricity. So it seems like lots of very good things are happening here in the ACT. Maybe that's a podcast we need to have. Well, it's good that things are happening at a state level when, th- when clearly there's not a great deal of progression at a federal level. Yeah, exactly. It's a small chink of light on a rather dark horizon. So, Sharon, I've got a question for you. Have you got a good life? It possibly depends on what day of the week or what time of the day you ask me. But generally, yes, I think I probably have. But after we talk with our fabulous guest today, I might reassess that. Well, I think I've got a good life as well. Although after Crystal Palace were thrashed by Tottenham Hotspur on Saturday, my my life didn't feel all that great at all, I've got to say. But in I was general, thinking of you, Martin, as celebrations broke out in yeah, our household. Yeah, I'm sure they were. I'm sure there was lots of celebrating in your household. There was not much celebrating in mine. But in general, I think I have a good life. And today on the podcast, we want to talk about what makes a good life and how policymakers can help in making a good life possible for everyone. Because we know that economic growth in developed countries has brought prosperity for a lot of people, uh, but it's also brought a lot of challenges. It's brought debt, it's brought inequality, uh, it comes with climate change, and not to mention the very troubling politics that are playing out in a lot of parts of the world. So not everyone is equally benefiting from that prosperity. So today we want to ask, how can policymakers ensure that everyone benefits from growth and prosperity in the economy? And we've got a really special guest with us to discuss this question, haven't we, Sharon? We do have a fantastic guest today, Martin. We have Catherine Trebek with us. Catherine is the Knowledge and Policy Lead with the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, um, and she is currently based in Glasgow. She was previously a senior researcher with Oxfam, doing some really interesting work um, about quality of life, um, alternative economies with Oxfam. She has developed the Humankind Index, and she's the author of a new book that I would encourage everyone to have a look at which is The Economics of Arrival. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back at ANU, back in Canberra, and sitting in this glorious cupboard chatting to (laughs) two fascinating people. Thanks for having me. So, Catherine, you are, as you said, you're from Canberra originally. You're Mm. an ANU graduate. Yeah, Canberra Uh, born and bred. uh, But you now live in Scotland. Are you enjoying being back in Canberra? It's lovely, except for those sweeping magpies. I sort of go out for runs along my my old streets, (laughs) terrified about a sweeping magpie. But it's beautiful being back. And Canberra gets better and better every every time I return. You get better Restaurants, cooler bars, the streets are more stunning. There's this lovely street art going on. It's just a really special place to return to. So, Catherine, it's great to have you back in the town. Um, can you tell us firstly what the Wellbeing Economic Alliance or the Wellbeing Economy Alliance mm. is? So it rather beautifully shortens to we all, which kind of sums up in a way what we're trying to do. It's it's born of the sense that there is so much good work happening around the world in various places at all sorts of levels trying to transform the economic system so it aligns better with what people and planet really need. So there's it's no shortage of ideas and a sense of what needs to change. 
The challenge is that so much of that is disconnected and hence happening in isolation and also battling against the headwinds of a policy regime and an economic system that's not really it's on, on its side. So what we're trying to do is connect and convene and amplify all that amazing work help people work together a bit more, help help us just by linking arms a little bit, pack more of a punch in the in the current economic system and transform it into one that is much more conducive to the sort of lives we want to see now and that we need for our future generations to have a fighting chance of, of quality of life. Catherine, we're going to talk about your new book shortly, but I do want to just go back to an earlier part of your career first. In one of your previous roles, you helped develop the Humankind Index that aims to measure what makes a good life. Can I ask you, like, how do you exactly define what a good life is? Uh, we ask people. <laughs> I don't think it's for, for me sitting sitting in a room in a, in a university to dis- describe exactly what it is. So this was a tiny, tiny little project and there are so many rough edges on it and there's lots I would do differently if we were to run it again. But it was it came out of work in Oxfam that really was illuminating how much the economic system in Scotland, where I was focused at the time, was not delivering poverty reduction. We were seeing wealth and wealth inequalities sort of grow and grow. We were seeing health inequalities expand as well. There are parts of Scotland where life expectancy is actually going down. Scotland's economic model is putting huge pressure on the planet with all the oil extraction, for, for example. And at the same time, up at the point, you know, GDP, you know, let alone with the, the GFC, but GDP had been rising merrily on upwards for the last few decades. And so we saw a real misalignment with what policymakers and politicians were focusing on and what communities around Scotland really, really needed. And we thought also that folks who are working on social justice and that were working on the environment were not sufficiently turning their attention to the nature of the economic system. So that was the conversation that led to it. Being Oxfam and also myself as a student of deliberative democracy, um, where I was supervised here at ANU by one of the world's leading scholars in deliberative democracy, it was obvious that we would approach this by work, reaching out and engaging with some of the most marginalised groups and making sure that their voices were at the forefront of this. So we spent our, as we'd say in Scotland, our wee budget, our tiny budget, really going out and creating spaces for people to chat and reflect with each other and kick around ideas about what really mattered to them. And then we spent a lot of time pulling together all those bits of butcher's paper. We had a representative poll. We had street surveys. We had an online poll. We had expert groups really scooping them together and coming up with a list of what I call the factors of prosperity. And they're fairly intuitive in a way. You know, people are sort of innately human, they come up with the same things. So it's things like safety and good secure housing, good relationships, uh, enough sufficiency of income, um, a good decent job. People didn't weren't talking about sort of footballer Tottenham Hotspur type salaries, they were, they were talking about enough to live in your community. They also talked about having a good local environment, those sorts of things that are fairly intuitive to all of us. But then when you looked at what the economic system was designed to do, it wasn't delivering good jobs. People were struggling with housing debt. We were, we were destroying some of our, our environments. People were feeling that their jobs were precarious and fairly insecure. And there's a huge problem in the UK at the moment with insecure work, or, you know, the gig economy, the zero hour economy agenda. People were really feeling that the economic rug was being pulled out from underneath them. And so what we then did is we had these, these 18 domains. And we worked with economic scholars who knew where the data was and we put numbers to it and we looked at how Scotland was performing and how it was working for different groups in Scotland, tracked it back over a few years to see the direction of travel and then we set about talking to politicians about it. And we'd actually had politicians involved from the beginning too. We had a cross-party representation on our steering group. And so we took this to the Scottish Parliament and we said, you know, this is what you should be turning your attention to. And it probably was the right thing at the right time, but it, in hindsight, has been really influential in shifting the debate in Scotland about what really matters. So, Catherine, when you um, went through that process of, of engagement or deliberative democracy with, with people, were different groups of people telling you different things in terms of what was most important to them? So did children tell you different things from adults? Were there differences between men and women? Or was there a broad consensus consensus across different groups? So there were marginal differences, um, particularly between men and women. And you'll see this if you look at similar sort of surveys that are done across the world, whether it was the massive survey that was done for ahead of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, or smaller, more bespoke projects. But 
in a way, when it all boils down to us, there's a, there are fairly common goals. And I was telling a colleague this morning that having done the Humankind Index in Scotland, a friend of mine did a very, very similar project in Namibia. And she had a video pulled together talking to the sort of folks that she engaged with. And very, very, I'd say actually almost identical priorities emerging from folks in communities in Namibia as there were emerging from former shipbuilding communities in Scotland. We also replicated, as Oxfam, replicated the process with communities in India, again reaching out to very marginalised groups such as Dalit communities, Muslim communities, tribal groups and, and women's groups. And again, people are talking about dignity, sufficiency, security. And if you look at a lot of the works of great development scholars like someone who I'm a big fan of, Manfred Max Neef, who has just died recently, he talks about these sort of fundamental human values that really, really matter. What is different is how we go about satisfying them. And that's something we, we turn to in the book, which we'll hopefully chat about in a minute. But yeah, there, there is a sort of a, almost a beautiful commonality and connection um, that we that we really know what, what matters to people because we hear it so many times when you sit down and talk to them. And you said you had politicians involved in this process from the beginning. What has the political response been, both in Scotland, but also beyond Scotland? So the Humankind Index was part of, I think, of a, a much wider effort to surprise open discussion and the conversation about the economy and to say, look, wait a minute, we need to look beyond GDP. So there is has been this growing momentum in the beyond GDP movement. You see groups like the OECD really at the forefront of that. We see politicians across the world starting to recognise that GDP does not account for all the so many things that matter. And of course, this conversation has deep, deep roots, you know, going back to the work of feminist economists in the 70s or the beautiful speech by Robert Kennedy in 1968. But the momentum is really, is really building. And so, also at the same time with the Humankind Index, it was when Scotland was having a conversation about what sort of country it wanted to be just ahead of the, the independence referendum. So in a way, for such a small little project, it really was the right thing at the right time. But the conversation has gone on beyond the, the Humankind Index itself. And we're still talking with governments around the world. And just recently, we've been really thrilled to see the current First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, use her recent TED talk to put very firmly on the map this idea that we need an economy that's a well-being economy that puts multi-dimensional, collective and ecological well-being at the forefront of its goal rather than just faster, faster GDP growth. And Scotland is also now leading this project that I've worked on for a number of years now to form a government partner, partnership of different governments who get that, who want to be part of that conversation, who realise they don't have all the answers, but who want to work together to collaborate, to share, to experiment. How do they actually go about delivering these sorts of economies? And that's called the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership. So it's a conversation that I think has got momentum. I think it's up against a lot of very sticky orthodox thinking. I think the media conversation has not nearly embraced these discussions to the extent we need it to. So until the treasurer or in Scotland, as we call them, the finance minister goes on national radio, probably in a room like this, the day after bringing down a budget and gets asked by the, the journalist, what's this going to do for collective well-being rather than what is this going to do for national growth? We've still got a long way to go. But, but things are moving, I think, in the right direction. There's cause for hope on this front, at least. So when you're in Scotland and having these conversations, how much is the government there um, or advocates for change there? How much are they looking towards other parts of the world? And I'm particularly thinking of recent developments in New Zealand where the the first wellbeing budget was brought down and where there is a very explicit policy mm. focus on shifting the agenda. Um, you know, do you look to, to New oh, Zealand yes. and see yes. a flicker of hope? <laughs> yes, indeed. So so the the group of wellbeing economy governments, WeGo, as, it, as it's called, comprises Scotland, New Zealand and, and Iceland, three small countries led by women so we can we can have a conversation about coincidences there but very much it's about what can we what can we learn from other countries and Scotland's got a good history in this for a long time they've had something called the national performance framework which does set out broader purpose of government but they weren't really I'd say implementing it or using it to guide policy making or budget processes as much as they could so it's really it's great to see almost a race to the top now spurred by 
all the traction that the New Zealand project is getting. Little Wales, of course, is is doing a lot. They've got a Wellbeing and Future Generations Act and commissioner that is almost a slightly outside government process to hold government to account for the well-being of current and future generations. Iceland's doing loads. And there are conversations that we're also really hoping will join in countries that we hope will join WeGo, like in Slovenia, in Costa Rica, in Finland with their amazing circular economy agenda. This is really broad-based. And there's there's countries that have got different strengths. So Costa Rica, for example, for a long time is one of the, the standout countries that hasn't got extremely high levels of GDP per capita, but have been able to deliver good lives, not just for their citizens, but for the planet as well. They're at the top of some of the most you know, challenging environmental conversations that we, we need to see. So there's lots to learn. In a way, if you take off the lens of which countries are at the top of the league table through GDP and you look around for other countries and other economies that are doing something differently, suddenly a whole new cast of characters comes into view. I mean, it does sound like this whole project is making a lot of headway and it's it's fantastic, exciting to hear, but you're battling some pretty strong headwinds in terms of some of the politics that are playing out around the world. We've got, you know, Trump and all of his eccentricities and <laughs> his desire to sort of pull back from the climate change commitments. We've got the rise of right-wing populists almost all over the world and in Scotland, in, in the rest of the UK, of course, the news is totally dominated by Brexit. Mm. Do you find it somewhat frustrating that um, the momentum for change that you're trying to gather is being perhaps being checked in some way by some of this sort of stuff, mm. or is it still, or is it still picking up despite? I that? mean, there's a few ways of looking at that. In a way, column inches are certainly being crowded out on this agenda. When when all everything that's written and, and talked about, certainly on British airwaves, is is Brexit. But at the same time, all of these trends just underscore the extent of system change that's required. They, I mean, if, for example, if Hillary had Clinton had got in, it would have just been a little bit of tinkering around the edges. That, that we, people know that that conversation has run its course now. We need really substantial shift in how we think about the economy, how how we tax, how businesses are designed, and and, and I think a lot of those these emerging fairly depressing political trends in a way are the, the final chance we've got. They they really underscore the extent to which we really need to roll our sleeves up and be ready for very, very challenging system change. But also make sure that people who are, are terrified about that, who are holding on for dear life to their current livelihoods, are taken on that journey with them so people are not resistant to that change. People feel that there is a pathway for them. And that's, I think, one of the challenges that we've seen in Australia in recent elections. We see this in Canada at the moment where there's an election coming up later this year that people whose livelihoods depend on the current system, they need to be worked with in a compassionate, gentle, empathetic way rather than shouted out and just left abandoned because just as much as we have stranded assets, we can't have stranded communities. The, The other point is that Yes, there's all this pretty depressing stuff happening at the, I guess, the national federal level around the world. But in every single one of those countries that you've mentioned, if you look underneath at more local level, at the city level in particular, we see really, really amazing steps forward. And so it is in, in America. It's a real paradox in America. that you know, If you look just nationally, pretty depressing state of affairs. But there is so much going on, whether it's California's really ambitious climate change, whether it's places like Maryland or Vermont adopting the Genuine Progress Index, whether it's the leadership on benefit corporations, whether it's community groups designing businesses differently or leading the front fight in sort of regenerative economies. There's so much good stuff happening. And and again, I think it just comes down to what, what lens we're looking at the world through. Catherine, I wanted to pick up on that really important point you made about bringing communities on in a way that's empathetic and compassionate and um, demonstrating that there are multiple pathways forward. And we certainly saw in the recent Australian election um, some of those issues play out as people were genuinely fearful of being left behind. What would you say to some of those communities, uh, for example, in Australia, the communities that are highly dependent on on the coal Mm. industry? what would you say to them in terms of bringing them along in a way that is empathetic? And very practically, what kinds of hope and options would you give them for the future if their current livelihoods are gone and they need to think about different alternatives um, in terms of livelihoods? I guess I wouldn't even start it with saying something to them. I would start it by sitting down at a table with them and exploring with them what sort of future can they imagine that's post-coal or post-oil uh, for, the, for their local economies. And I have to say, in hindsight, with the Humankind Index, the, the question we led on then back in 2000 and, 
and 11 and 12 was what do you need to live well in your community now? And that yielded very immediate, very local um, results. In hindsight, if I was doing that again, I would lead with a question along the lines of what sort of country do we need for your grandchildren to be happy? And I would ask that same sort of question with, you know, coal mining communities in, in the Hunter Valley or in, or in Queensland. By, they will know. They, they won't be ignorant to the science that the, the world is heating up, uh, that Australia has had record droughts, that uh, the bushfire season is getting longer and more ferocious. They, they won't be blind to that. I would, I would put them at the forefront of the conversation and say, you know, what can we do to imagine an economy that meets the needs of, of your children that is perhaps post-call? And I'd start from there. And, and if they asked you, what do we do? How do we earn a living? to sustain our children and our grandchildren. What kinds of options would you put on the table to help move that conversation forward? And that's where I think the just transition conversation comes into the fore, that we we combine the social justice agenda with the transformation of how we provide our energy and how we make a shift to renewables. And so bringing in interest groups like unions, bringing in business groups, retraining. I mean, there's a wonderful example that we, we give in the book of, and it's led by groups who used to work in the tar sands up in Canada, who've now started their own renewable business. It's that sort of thing that, they, you know, these these skills, they're not maybe not immediately transferable, but they're not a million miles away from the sc- sort of skill sets that we need to really roll out renewable energy across the economy. And we just, we need pathways rather than cliff edges for these sorts of communities. So Catherine, let's move on to talking about your book. It's, uh, it's called The Economics of Arrival. And in it, you look at the prosperity that growth has brought to developed countries. But you also argue that debt, inequality, climate change and fractured politics are getting in the way of reaping the benefits of that prosperity. What can we do to ensure that uh, everyone gains from that growth and prosperity? Yeah, so this is a book I wrote with Jeremy Williams, and it's so it's a dual concept, so same as those dual authors. So the first part of the concept is this idea of arrival, that countries that are wealthy in an economic sense, perhaps it's time for them to recognise that they've arrived, that they have enough wealth and resources. And if you look at the extent to which the returns in terms of social progress to more and more growth are starting to tail off and actually entering fairly dangerous territory, the more we try to push down on that accelerator of growth, it's hard to deny that the the benefits really land at early stages of economic development. Same same at Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It is with, with an individual as well, someone who has no house or is on a very low income, they'll get very serious returns from a little bit more. But for those folks who have got enough and who are well provided for, the the conversation has to move to something different. And that's the the second part of the book. It's about making ourselves at home and allowing a different conversation. It's a real shift in gear to continue that rather inappropriate driving metaphor. It's a shift in gear about how we design the economy that puts at the forefront an economy that delivers first time rounds. And I talk about the economy doing more of the heavy lifting. So pre-distribution, it's a rather ugly word, but I think quite a beautiful concept. It's one where we don't allow economic inequality to open up to such grave extent that you then need to do so much work through the political and state system to redistribute it. So in this, in Australia, it's effort by the government at various levels through taxes and transfers that reduces Australia's market-led in economy by about 40%. That's a hell of a lift by government. Think how how more efficient in a way it would be if we designed the economy differently so those huge gaps didn't open up so far in the first place. And then, of course, in how we build things, it's all about the, you know, the circular economy, how we also understand our use of resources. It's got to be much more collaborative. We don't all need to own the sort of the power tool or the washing machine. We can start to think about how we share those things a lot better. So we are really making ourselves at home with that, that wealth that we've got. And it has, in the past, when it's been used well, delivered quite good returns. But those returns are tailing off and we talk about how the fruits of growth are beginning to rot. 
Catherine, I was in London last week at the Human Development and Capability Association Conference and Vandana Shiva gave the keynote address and it was an incredible keynote. Um, And she focused on the 1%, you know, the incredibly wealthy 1% who really are reaping phenomenal, some may mm. even say quite disgusting levels of benefit from, from the way the economy functions at the moment. As was Van Danashiva. <laughs> Where do you think we need to focus our attention? Is it on the one percent who really are at the mm. extreme end in terms of wealth acquisition? Mm. Um, and she made the point as a consequence of that able to distort democracy and mm. democratic deliberation, which is highly concerning. Mm. Um, or do we need to focus more broadly? Um, you know, you were giving examples of, of sharing of, you know, the washing machine, the car or whatever. Do we focus on both or is there a starting point in terms of the 1% or the the, the broader population who have done reasonably well out of economic growth. And this is where it gets tricky because it can't be just one. I mean, we cannot be one easy sort of, you know, lever to pull. This is a very complex system, system-wide conversation. I, I would focus partly on, on the 1%, not as individuals, but as symptoms of a system that is designed in a way that siphons wealth upwards. Um, so it's not about pitting the poorest against the richest or class warfare, as I've heard thrown about the airwaves by certain politicians since I've been back in Australia. It's not about that. It's about understanding that we have a system designed and and concertedly designed, as you've alluded to, by those for whom it works very well. Um, one of my great intellectual heroes, John Alameda's talk about talks about the success to the successful. So if you've done well out of the economy, you can then lean on politicians, you can get your accountant to do some fancy footwork, you can send your children to amazing schools, you can really just have those mutually reinforcing processes that then mean we've got this sort of vicious circle of more and more wealth being siphoned upwards and leaving the rest of us with very little to share. And when you're talking about a finite planet, it's, it is a zero-sum game in, in one sense. And if those of us who are, have done quite well out of the current economic system do not make ecological room for the rest of us, then we're starting to see the sorts of pressures on the planet and migration and on politics as we're already seeing. So it does mean that there isn't one easy sort of five-point plan. But I would, if I had to start somewhere, I start where I've been, I guess, working in the last five, ten years, and that's the purpose of the economy, trying to shift that conversation about what we want out of the economy, who is the economy designed for, what's it, what it is prioritising. Because if you think of GDP, there are so many perverse incentives of seeing GDP as what politicians should be focusing on when they get up on, on Monday morning and, and work to Parliament House. That, to me, is one of the most important conversations because so many of these other shifts will be enabled. So let me just give you a really brief example, something I'm really excited about in Scotland, is since this conversation about a wellbeing economy and beyond GDP has really got momentum in Scotland, just recently Scottish Enterprise, which is the big sort of business support agency, supporting you know, different sorts of businesses and you know giving tutorials and business planning and marketing support and international development support, they have just recently said they're going to move their attention away from businesses purely on the basis of their growth potential and focus on those businesses that will deliver on human rights agendas, on poverty reduction agendas, on well-being agendas, on decent work agendas. And that's the sort of change that will come if we shift the purpose of our understanding about what the economy is about and what policymakers and politicians should be doing when they're trying to interfere and shape the economy accordingly. So Catherine, you're here doing a book tour. You were recording on Wednesday and you're speaking at ANU tonight. You're in Perth on the 23rd of September, Brisbane two days later, and finally Sydney on the 26th. And for listeners, we'll leave details of those events. And Melbourne tomorrow. Uh, Melbourne tomorrow. And we'll <laughs> leave no, details of go those. go back to Melbourne. <laughs> we'll leave details of those events in the pod description for people who might want to get themselves along. But broadly speaking, what kind of response are you seeing from people, from the public, to the ideas that you present in the book? It's been really really nice actually I, I would be, um not everything that's in the book is new we we stand on the shoulders of a lot of giants and a lot of intellectual heroes of ours but what we're trying to do is bring together a lot of literature around economics around growth around human development around degrowth around the, the planet and environmental questions bring them together in a fairly accessible way and link them together with concepts that we hope will make sense to people and help just really ra- help them raise an eyebrow at the current economic system and help them 
imagine or begin to imagine a different set of questions and a different conversation about the economy. And so, for example, I had a, a good friend who was my, my target audience when I was writing, actually, and she she's deep in, in medical physics. She's she's really smart, young lass, passionate and angry about Brexit at the moment. Um, but she doesn't work on the economy and she doesn't work on these questions around, around growth. And she's just fed back to me that she just loved reading the book and she's now talking about it to her friends. And that, that's the sort of conversations that we're wanting to spark with this, just really kick off. You know, can we ask more of the economy? Can we have higher expectations rather than just faster, faster growth and then do what we can at five o'clock in the afternoon to fix all the damage and all the harm that came with such an economic system and all the effort and cost and inefficiency that comes with that effort to try and fix the harm a growing economy does. Catherine, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today and lots and lots of food for thought in terms of how we need to change a system that is pretty much looking broken at the moment, but some real glimmers of light on the horizon. So thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your insights with us today. My pleasure. It's been wonderful. And listeners, don't forget to stick around because after a very short break, we will be going over some of your questions, comments and suggestions for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back and uh, thanks once again to Catherine for telling us all about her new book and the ideas in there. I I found that really interesting. I'm really keen to hear what our listeners thought of that discussion. Please do get in contact with us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your comments. Uh, You can reach us on Twitter where we are apps policy forum. You can email us where we are podcast at policyforum.net or the very best way to reach us. Jump onto Facebook and find our podcast group. We're policy forum pod on Facebook. Uh, If you are interested in learning, learning more about effective economic policy, you might want to check out Crawford School's Master of Economic Policy degree. You can find out more information about that at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, we have got Catherine, so thank you for sticking around for us for this section. Uh, Catherine, in this section, we generally go over some comments and questions and welcome some of our new Facebook friends. But first, Catherine, I've got a one more question for you. In our Facebook podcast group, uh, we keep a file with all of the podcasts that our listeners enjoy. So kind of pick your brains. What is on your podcast playlist? Oh, good question. I'm obsessed with podcasts, particularly for long journeys. So a lot of uh, documentaries from BBC's World Service. And I have to say, I still listen to Philip Adams' Late Night Live so because I miss Everyone that. Everyone loves Philip Adams. And he gets Adams. such such amazing guests from, from all over the world. And so that's definitely there. Um, I also love LSE, the London School of Economics. They do public lectures and they record them. And I had a very exciting moment earlier this year where I got to do a public lecture with the New Zealand finance minister. So that was quite a moment So because I'm such a fan of their, their work. Um, sadly, not much music. I have something rather infamously known as Genius Rock Mix Number no. 3 that I, everyone takes a mickey out of very unfairly. But it's doesn't, mainly main geeky stuff. Doesn't, doesn't your, Twitter, your Twitter bio talk about your dubious yeah, music taste? I've been told so many times about my, my rubbish taste in music. I'm just a, a proud Aussie rock ballad fan. <laughs> I'd throw that any left of them. <laughs> well, look, we won't add the Aussie rock to the <laughs> podcast playlist, but we will add your suggestions for podcasts to that place. So many thanks for that. Uh, and listeners, you've heard what Catherine likes to listen to. But if you're looking for more inspiration, just pause the podcast there for a second. Jump on, join the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod on Facebook, and you can find more great podcasts in our files there. Now, let's go over a couple of comments that we've had on previous podcasts. The first I want to look at is a podcast that we put out called Can Australia Make Its Waste Work? And that featured Leo Dobes, Esther Hughes and Ron Weinberg. And on that pod, they took a look at waste management and recycling challenges. Um, And there was a comment from John Hitchin. 
on Facebook. And John wrote, don't like your chances. The general public won't even pick up their own rubbish when they're away from their house. All the Environment Protection Authority do is hide away from their job. Nobody wants to pay to get their rubbish removed. And recycling is a joke. The public are hypocrites. Pretty strong stuff from John there. But is as it is there any, any truth in what he's saying, Sharon? There's probably a little bit of truth in what he's saying. I and mean, I sometimes do despair when I go for a bush walk or to the beach and see the amount of rubbish. But I'm not sure that everyone are hypocrites. And I think there is a growing concern Um about the environment, about what we do with our waste. And I think there is a real rise of concern and activism amongst young people who, for the most part, I think are not hypocrites and are really kind of leading the way on some of these issues. So I'm I'm probably not as despairing um, as that comment would suggest. But when we when we did that podcast, Ron Weinberg made a really interesting comment, which was about listening to the experts on some of these issues. And I do think on things like recycling and management of waste, we don't actually hear enough from the experts. You know, the agenda is often taken up by people who do have an agenda. And listening to Ron, I thought was really hopeful and optimistic because he had a whole range of solutions to how we deal with the problem. Um, So I think if we do listen to the experts, maybe we get some more direction on how we move forward and, and don't engage in hypocritical behaviour. Catherine, you've experienced recycling uh, in at least two countries. What do you make of uh, Australian attitudes towards recycling? This is one of those experiences where I come back to Australia and I think folks don't realise how lucky you are here. And I I think that comment on on, uh, your Facebook group probably is an example of that. I mean... If, he, if, if that gentleman went to Glasgow, his head would be in his hands because of, you know, it, it shocks me actually every time I go back to the UK how dirty it is. So in terms of people dropping things on the ground, I think Australia is actually way ahead in, in terms of being a much better performer than many other countries. But it's not at the top of the league table in, in terms of recycling. You only have to go to places like Sweden where outside every community housing facility you're talking seven or eight different options in, in your recycling and they've just Open their their first world's ever shopping mall, not just one shop, but a shopping mall all dedicated to recycled and re secondhand goods. So they're really upping the ante with this idea of reuse and repair and recycle a circular economy agenda. So there's lots that Australia can be proud of. And I think Australia is getting getting there. I mean, just down the road in Margaret Lane, you've got the what is it, the green zone or the renew or whatever it's it's called that I used to call the tip when I was growing up here and is now really on the front foot of recycling. So I think Australia is better than maybe folks allow yourselves to think, but not time to sit back and, and do nothing. There's more to do and there's places like Sweden that we can we can learn from still. What about that question that John asks or, or that statement that John makes about the public being hypocrites? Do we actually walk the walk as well as talk the talk, Sharon? Well, I I think it's probably quite divided. I mean, I'm always struck by how much effort people go to to try to separate their waste to put stuff into the um, the recyclable bin to compost where they can. So I think, yes, there probably is a bit of hypocrisy around where we don't walk the walk, speaking for myself. But I do think that a lot of people are committed. And the more people have knowledge, the more pe- committed people become. And I think there there is a recognition that we do need to recycle, that we need to manage waste differently. So I'm as I, as I said, I'm not quite as despairing as John is on this. I just if I can just add to that, I think there is something really important about us people being empowered and excited about taking personal steps without being terrified of not being perfect yet. So making the effort on recycling or buying clothes from a a charity store or taking the bus when you can, but if you had to fly to see a relative or something, just to be in a way understand that we still live in a world that's not designed in a way to enable these sorts of choices. I think those personal choices are really key in one, helping people feel that they're part of better, part of moving things ahead. But also, ultimately, they show to our politicians that there is a head of steam about, about this and the public is demanding more an enabling context to help these choices become more easy and rather than just fretting about not being perfect from, from day one because that's impossible in the current state of the world. I do think there are some, some really fundamental issues, though, that, um, that frustrate people when they're trying to do the right thing on this. And, you know... It, 
you hear again and again, and, and I share this this frustration of buying things that are double, triple, quadruple wrapped, you know, the amount of packaging, the amount of advertising material that still turns up again and again and just gets thrown away into the bin. And so I think that, you know, I, I agree with Catherine that there are sort of those small personal steps that really matter. But I think there are also things that people would want to do but can't do because the system prevents it. So, you know, you go to the shop and you buy apples that are wrapped in plastic and in a plastic box. And I think increasingly people are avoiding buying things that are packaged in that way. But if you go to your local supermarket and that's how everything is presented, then your choices are limited and not everyone has the option to go to the fresh farmer's market. So I think there are some really fundamental things that we need to do at a systemic level to make changes that empower and enable people to make different choices and to make the choices that they would probably prefer to make. Lots of good points there. Thank you to both of you. And thank you to John for that comment. It certainly got us talking. Yeah, we could keep on going. With yeah, this. I'm sure we could. Comment. Yeah, I'm sure we could. But we need to move on because there's another comment, which is uh, on a different podcast. We put out a podcast a couple of weeks back called Language Barriers, and that featured Luc Cotois, Grazia Scottolaro, and Angela Scarino. And in that podcast, we took a look at Australian education language policy and asked whether we're doing enough to give young people the language skills that they need, particularly in the Asian century. And there was a comment from Terra Starbird on Twitter, great name, uh, and Terra Starbird wrote, language lessons in primary school, not once per week, but once per day. That's what science says is the best way to learn a language. Sharon, you speak a number of languages. What do you make of that comment? I, I don't speak a number of languages. I don't even speak English perfectly well all the time. But, um, but I do think it's incredibly important to speak more than one language, not just for the practical reasons, but because it opens up the world. It opens up different ways of thinking and deeper understanding of different perspectives when you speak another language. Um, and I would just add, because people can't see our guests, Grazia Scottolaro has a fantastic T-shirt that she often wears that says Mon Monolingualism can be cured. So <laughs> we, need, we need a photo of Grazia on actually, Facebook site. She actually wore that on the podcast. She so did. It was very appropriate. Um, but I, I think Tara makes a, a, an interesting point that teachers would certainly engage in around the challenges of the crowded curriculum and how we actually deliver more and more to students. And of course, there are innovative ways of teaching language and teaching language and other subjects together. But I think one of the real challenges we have in Australia that we have to overcome is the number of teachers who are actually able to teach a second language. Um, you know, so many schools and particularly government schools um, in and particularly in disadvantaged areas are, don't have the teachers who are able to teach a second language. And I was recently interviewing a teacher from um, a school in a remote area who was saying that he had taught French for three years, but he can't actually speak French himself. So he was kind of ahead of the book um, and doing his best and thought that it was really important that students were able to speak another language. But in this very small school, in this small community, there was no one else available. So he stepped up to try to do it. Um, now, that's an extreme example. But if we are going to take language teaching seriously in schools, we have to have teachers that are able to teach those languages. We have to support them and we have to think about teacher training and, and how we make that happen. So I think Tara's probably right about more teaching, but there are prior issues that we need to address before we can get to that. Catherine, where do you stand on Tara's point there? Uh -huh. would, would you agree that um, there should be language lessons in primary school once once a day? For if, if that's what the evidence takes to to cure this monolingualist, which I'm I'm a rather ashamed to say, yeah, certainly a culprit on. Um, it's one of my biggest regrets in life that I don't speak more languages and and living well at the moment still part of Europe. Um, it, it, it is, it's quite shamefaced actually how those sort of the, the Anglo-Saxon countries have not taken the time to learn other people's languages because they're, I guess, have been lucky enough that they've grown up with English, which other people are good enough to learn. I mean, one of the tricky questions around Brexit, I mean, apart from Ireland, Ireland will be the only country that's in the European Union that has English as its first language, but yet English is one of the main 
official languages of the European Union. Might might that be be a challenge? Who who's, who knows? But I, whatever it takes. And if and there's so much great evidence around different learning methods and learning styles and creative teachers who are passionate, as the one you've just you've just met, Sharon, and and to just let them have a, a free reign and all the support and resources they need to to run with it, because it's a, one of the best things we could do for future generations is to help them go out into the world able to communicate. It's probably one of the key the key capabilities that we can offer. Yeah, quite right too, and great point. So many thanks, Tara Starbird, for that terrific comment. And thank you to everyone who has commented or got in contact with us uh, over the last week. We love hearing from you. The best way to do that is uh, through our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod. Just jump on there, join the group. We'll be very welcome there. But you can also reach us on Twitter, where we're at Policy Forum, or you can email podcast at policyforum.net. Now, talking of the Facebook group, I would like to welcome a few new members to our Facebook pod family. So a big hello to, I'm likely to mangle some names here, just a word of warning in advance. Hello to Ali Smith, David Winter, Joy Amelia, uh, Meritaka Ruaya, uh, apologies if I've mangled your name there, Beck Clark, Alfred Lee, Nick Clark, I wonder if Nick and Beck are related, Jason Valusaga, Rachel Puglisi, Gentle Daniel, Estelle McCabe, Alastair McGill. Gillivray, Rob Connolly, and Hamish Millard. So welcome all of you to the pod gang. It's great to have you on board. And actually, a special thanks to Estelle, Alastair, and Hamish for sharing their ideas of future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. I want to run these past you both, Sharon and Catherine. Hamish said we should do anything to do with the regional politics and Australia's engagement with the Asia-Pacific region. Alastair suggested policy to do with Australia's engagement with Indonesia. Uh, Estelle wrote maybe nuclear or LNG energy, and Kurt wrote Japan's future military involvement in the Indo-Pacific. What are your thoughts on those, Sharon? Oh, I love our Facebook gang. What great suggestions. I think any and every one of those would be fantastic. Um, I'm always up for some discussion around Australia's engagement with Indonesia, so I'd probably put that at the top of the list, but I think they are all fantastic suggestions. Catherine, you're a podcast junkie. Which of which of those would you be most likely to switch on? One about uh, Australia's engagement with the Asia Pacific, one on Australia's engagement with Indonesia, one on nuclear energy, or one on Japan's future military involvement in the Indo-Pacific? Oh, the first one. They've all got a sort of hints of geopolitics about them, so perhaps it'd be good to sort of dive in underneath around sort of you know what are the agendas of this engagement, and you know what what are the differences, and what are some really beautiful examples of countries working together to address things like that we've t- talked before. About about, you know, some of the big environmental challenges that all these countries are facing. Great. So thank you to everyone who's left suggestions. Really, uh, really enjoyed this and great ideas there. And we're really keen to get your thoughts on what topics you'd like to see covered on the podcast and jump onto the Facebook group to do that. Uh, while we're here, while we're doing some administration, I'd like to congratulate this week's winner of the very uh, limited edition, but not quite a limited edition now because we've got a few more of them made. 99, got 99 problems, but a brew ain't one policy forum pod mug. Uh, Beck Ann won our mug lottery last week. So congratulations, Beck Ann. We have sent the mug. It's on its way to you. Please do share some pictures of the fabulous places that you will be taking the mug. Uh, if you want to win one of these mugs, there are, of course, two ways to do that. The first is to suggest a topic for the podcast. Uh, the second is to have five of your questions or comments read out on the podcast. Now, that can either be on Policy Forum Pod or on Democracy Sausage. Uh, and we've got Lydia Kim, who presents the podcast sometimes, keeping a running tally of how everyone is doing with those comments. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. So I'd like to thank you, Sharon, for being my very uh, capable co-host today. Thank you, Martin. Fantastic to be back. And Catherine, thank you so much for being with us today to share your thoughts and talk about your book. Such fun. Lovely to meet you both. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please do subscribe. Uh, Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode has been produced by me, Martin Pierce, with writing and post-production by Yulia Ahrens and extra writing by Patrick Cooney. Thanks to both of them. I love your work. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, cheerio. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 